Got some good space here this morning. Good morning. Good to be able to worship God together. And we also want to welcome back the Igalanis who have toured all the way around the world and back. Great to have you back. Metu also turned 40 over that time, so that's a big one. But he still looks 21, bro. Still looks 21. So as the year comes to an end and a new one begins in a couple months, our churches will experience a little bit of transition. And so I want to talk a little bit about that before we dive into the lesson this morning. So this morning is just to make some things public, and then later it'll be more official where we properly recognize people. So, for instance, some people are moving up. And into different areas. So Gillen is graduating university. As well as Peter is graduating university. So where are Gillen and Peter? Go ahead, go ahead and stand up really fast, Peter. And where's Gillen? Oh, he's in the kids. Okay, good. So they're, I don't know why that's good, but it's good. So they're, they're graduating, which is awesome. And as they finish university, some of the preteens are coming into the teen ministry pretty soon. So they're, they're probably not in here at the moment, but several, I think at least seven boys are coming into the teen ministry. So that's pretty awesome. And then preteens will be coming into the preteen ministry. So that's, that's awesome as, re- as well. And while some people are moving up, some people are moving around. So the Ismaels, Alberto and Joe Hill, have been doing a phenomenal job leading our teen ministry for the last five years. And now Chris Lee's coming into the teen ministry as well, which is awesome. And so they are going to transition out to the central area and lead a Bible talk and also the central region. So uh, we'll properly make this kind of a, a, rec- a recognized thing later. But I just first want to say, wherever Al and Joe are, we, we love you guys' service and done a fantastic job with the teens. And so at the end of the year, they'll transition in, in, into the central region. And then they've done a fantastic job of raising up Tyson and Chloe Klein, who will, from this point in January, lead the teen ministry. So that'll be awesome as well. And since we have so many coming into the teen ministry, we're going to beef up that teen ministry and add a few new people. So Abhijit and Rowena are going to be in the teen ministry. That's awesome. And a, f- a few others are in discussion phase of joining the teen ministry as well. And also moving, f- transitioning from the teen ministry out into the West are Jody and Faye Walker. So they've done a great job in our teen ministry as well. And... And it's going to be exciting for the West because they'll be doing a Bible talk, really trying to reach the island community. And so really pray for that. It's going to be awesome. We're excited about that. And uh, my, my inner islander will come out, bro, as, as that all takes place. Also, recently, uh, Brendan was serving in the teen ministry, and he's now serving in the cat ministry. So that's, that's awesome as well. And while some people are moving up and moving around, some people, sadly, are moving away. And so you, you, you may or may not know, but Gillen Malalastis is headed back to Sydney, Australia when he graduates. So uh, November 25th, it will be a going away party for him. And the next day, actually, he'll go back to Australia and spend time over there with his family and his girlfriend with the intention to come back here and play a church in Wellington. So you can go and tell him that after that. And also, it's been such a joy to have Monique here with us for, where's, for the past year and a half. And we, she's uh, going to move back to Australia as well at the end of the year. And 
man. That's very sad. But it's also very awesome because her family's there, and I think a door is opening for her family to accept the gospel, and so we want to take advantage of that. But she and, and Gillen and Chris have done a phenomenal job with their cat ministry, really building and, and making that ministry something that Megan and I could never have done. And so we, we greatly appreciate your work. We love you so much, and we'll see you when you come back in a few months and a few when because she's going to come back to Wellington as well. That was a clause in her contract that she may have glossed over. Um, so their, their going away party will be at the end of November and we'll properly send them away. And as all this shuffling has happened throughout the church, we also need to increase our leadership base because that's, that's healthy as well. And so I'm going to ask Raymond and Elzebeth to uh, pop up to the stage because first, first Timothy three speaks about the criteria and the role and the service of a deacon. And it's not a role that's created for someone just to fill, but it's someone that's filling that role. And then we appoint them into that role. So they're already doing and serving that. And that, that, is, that is very true of Raymond and Elzebe as they serve in a variety of ways, but specifically have done a great job with our preteen ministry, serving in that aspect. And in 1 Timothy 3, it talks about this criteria where it says that a deacon needs to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be first tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. And these passages were put before the church several months ago to say, we want to nominate Raymond and Elzebeth to serve in this role. And then a time of testing has taken place, and God has made it clear that they will be filling that role, Raymond serving as a deacon, and Elsby alongside as his wife. And this is, this is really an important thing for our church, because it, it spreads out the leadership base. They're already serving in this role, and it adds to the long-term health of the church. So I, I just want to take a moment. Let's all pray together as um, Raymond and Elsby will join our, our, our leadership group, along with Duncan, who serves as a deacon, and his wife, Scott Cushman, and his his wife, Anna, Tony Palm, and his wife, his wife, Lonnie, Richard, Carrie, and Anne, and then Alberto and Joe, and now Raymond and Elzebeth, and am I forgetting someone? John and Amine Salud. So now we have a total of seven deacons, which is a spiritual number. That's what we're always gunning for. But uh, let's, let's pray together as we recognize this appointment of deacon. Uh, God, we are so grateful to see what you're doing in your church, what you're doing throughout the world, but specifically here in Auckland, we're just excited for the faith and the trust that, that Raymond and Elzebeth have earned in the church and in your service as well, and for all they've done and will continue to do, Father. And we're just grateful that we've been able to put this before you and the church, and it's very clear that they can be appointed and serve in this role of deacon and deacon's wife. And we pray, God, that you use them in a powerful way and continue to serve for the the health of our church. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank Thanks, you guys. Yep. Awesome. Very good. All right. No real fancy intro this morning because we had a lot of transitions, so jump into Acts chapter 18, and we're going to keep going through the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible this morning, the text of the passage will be on the screen. So we're stepping up in our technology. <laughs> 
And we're going to dive in and start reading in verse 24 and read until midway through chapter 19. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. And there it is on the screen. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. This is evidence of a church there in Ephesus writing to send Apollos away. So there, there's a church there that says, this guy's good, we vouch for him. And when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. That must have been alarming for Paul. In verse 3, so he asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. They replied, Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe, which is everybody has a chance, so it's not nobody's determined before it all begins. But they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, which is another name for the church at that point. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. So that all the Jews and all the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons, as if he must have been wearing an apron and handed it to somebody, that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Now get ready for some interesting reading. In verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know about, but who are you? This is freaky. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beat down. I like to say beat down. This is a, it's a beat down. It's such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This is not a story that's taught to the kids ministry often, by the way. <laughs> this morning we're going to learn about the seven scones of Siva. <laughs> 
When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem Passing through Macedonia and Achaia, after I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. What a wild story that's going on this morning. And the context here is basically Paul's third missionary journey where he's ended. He's gone to Athens and now he's going to travel around and plant more churches and strengthen more people. And I thought we'd look at three ideas from this from this passage this morning. I thought, first of all, we talk about filling the gaps, filling the gaps. And, and so the reality is none of us have it all figured out. And if you do, please inform us of that, because. I think we all have gaps in our understanding. We all have gaps in our knowledge. And we're ever learning and ever increasing that, aren't we? And Apollos, in our passage, is an example of this. But if you look at this description of Apollos, he, he's a pretty solid guy, isn't he? There's, there's a big description of him in the passage that said he's, he's a learned man. He has thorough knowledge. He speaks with fervor. He taught about Jesus accurately. He speaks boldly while he's in the synagogue. He's vigorously refuting his opponents. And he proves that Jesus is the Messiah from the Bible. So much recommendation that the church says, let's write a letter because we will receive you or we'll be able to vouch for you to send you off. I mean, imagine a guy like this coming to church and there's a letter saying this and this is his CV. I feel threatened. This guy's coming to take my job. But th this guy is, a, is, a, is an example of somebody passionate and effective about using the scriptures. But he had a little bit of a gap in his knowledge. And it's the same thing when Paul goes to Ephesus later on in this, in this passage. When Paul goes to Ephesus, he arrives and meets some disciples and they have a conversation. And he says, well, what baptism did you receive? John's, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. They're not even aware of Pentecost, in other words. They don't know what's happened to Pentecost. And Paul clears up the situation. They get baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. So here's these two cases where they have gaps in their understanding of spiritual matters. And they're all cleared up. And I think it's important to understand that we all kind of have these gaps, right? In, in our understanding. At one point in history, being left-handed was considered sinister. And how many of you are left-handed this morning? Oh, they're all on one side. They're all on the left side to me, except Alan. So throw your hands up in the air again. So one, two, three, four, five. None over here. Uh, no left hand. Oh, you sure, Peter? Okay. He raised his left hand. During the Middle Ages, it was assumed that there was something satanic about left-handed people. <laughs> That, that's, that's a serious gap in the knowledge. At one point, it was even taught that Satan himself was left-handed. That's crazy. And it wasn't until like 50 or 60 years ago that in places like Albania, being left-handed was illegal. 
and punishable by as a crime. That's that's crazy. They were all left out. But overall, <laughs> that's true. All that information is true, by the way. That that wasn't a buildup. But you see, this is one example of many of this kind of gap in their knowledge. There's this misunderstanding about left-handed people. It wasn't until recently that, that they started to understand, hey, it's all good. But in the absence of truth, kind of superstition and emotional reaction ruled the day. And there's a massive gap in their knowledge. And praise God, it's been closed. But I think that we got to understand, we all have these gaps in our learning, okay? All have these gaps in our spiritual life. And so th- this implies... Everyone needs humility. Amen. If you were to imagine this Apollo speaking and hearing him in the synagogue and then thinking, man, he has gaps in his knowledge, pulling him aside and saying, hey, we'd, we'd like to explain a little bit more adequately your teaching. A man, I mean, he's a thorough man. He knows about the scripture. He refutes people effectively. He's bold. He speaks with fervor. He's got this passionate recommendation. But there's a little gap. We want to help you close the gap. And he's, it's all good with him. Because he's a humble guy. He allows Priscilla and Aquila to bring him into his home and teach him more adequately. The same thing with the disciples in Ephesus. They meet Paul and they don't say, hey, well, what about this and that? They accept Paul's teaching. The gap closed. They get baptized. They get filled with the Spirit. And so in both these cases, the gap gets closed. But there's a necessity for humility. There's Proverbs that talk about being humble and taking correction. Proverbs 10, verse 17. Whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life. But whoever ignores correction leads others astray. So we have to be humble so we can be corrected and help others as well. Proverbs 15, verse 12. Mockers resent correction, so they avoid the wise. And so we see that the other end of the spectrum, people that don't invite it, lead other people astray. But there's a necessity to be humble because we all have these gaps. There's also a necessity to be respectful. Where did Priscilla and Aquila hear Apollos? In the synagogue. Imagine the scene they could have created. Say, hey, hey, I'm sorry, Apollo. Sorry, everybody. But he has a bit of a gap in his knowledge. So we just want to fill it right here publicly. But what do they do? The, the, the Bible says they brought him into their home. And explained the way of God to him more adequately. So there is a respectful way to help people close the gaps. There is a disrespectful way to do that as well. You never do something like that publicly. And, 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 and in the big scheme, there are major and there are minor gaps in our spiritual knowledge. If you think the Bible is written by one author, that's a minor gap. It's not one author, it's about 40. But if you think a different doctrine on salvation, that's a major gap. And we need to help that gap be closed. And I think it's, and in, in, in this passage, we also learn that it's appropriate when you know somebody respectfully to ask them about their salvation. That's okay. As long as it's done respectfully. And as long as there's been a relationship built with that person, it should never be on the first go round. Or you meet somebody and throw out something about their salvation. There has to be some kind of respect in there. But I think we get funny about that sometimes. And it's okay when you know somebody to respectfully ask about their salvation doctrine. But as long as it's done respectfully. 
But we all need to be humble and we all need to have respect. We all need to have this posture of respect when we recognize these gaps. Amen? Secondly, we're going to talk about being relentlessly mission-minded. Paul is an example. He's very inspiring and very challenging in this passage. In verse 8, it says that he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. About 12 Saturdays where he's preaching on the synagogue. And as his custom, whenever he preaches, it's an unfavorable response. They publicly malign the way. This isn't some kind of private closed door situation. They're saying they're publicly persecuting him. And he doesn't shrink back as he does often in his custom. He says, okay, he left them. Hey, there's a guy named Tyrannus that has a hall over here. We're going to hire that. And we're going to meet there for the next two years. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Here's this public wave of persecution. And Paul says, fair enough. I'll just go over here. And I'll still keep preaching. And I'll still keep having these discussions. And he does that for two more years. And the Bible says in verse 10, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I mean, that's kind of his mode of operation. He preaches bold in the synagogue. They respond badly. He says, okay, I'll go right next door and baptize the house. Hold of Christmas. He goes to the next synagogue and they publicly start persecuting him. Hey, that's all good. I'll hire out that lecture hall right there. I mean, he's relentless in his mission mindset. I'd like to share with you some of the brothers and sisters I got to talk to in Panama. And as a result of these conversations, I was both... I was a mixture of ashamed, inspired, and humbled of these brothers and sisters in our fellowship of churches all over the world. Samir and Eva probably know this couple here. Uh, these are couples serving in our churches in the Middle East. And on the far left, that's Mufid and Jesse. And they lead a church over in the Middle East. And, and at one point he was sharing his faith over there and he got held detained in Egypt for five months, kept from his family because he was sharing his faith. Couldn't, and he leads the church. He couldn't see his family. He couldn't see his kids. He couldn't even lead his church because he was relentless in his evangelism. And after hearing that, I think, oh, I'm ashamed to say some, sometimes I'm afraid to talk to my neighbor. And this guy's away from his family for five months. The other couple also lead a church in the Middle East and in one of the large Muslim areas. And they, they had fruit converting Muslims. That, that's pretty big in itself. They went the next step and put a, a sign in front of the church building they hired saying this is a Christian church. But that's a bold thing to do in a Muslim area that's population. And, it, and that city was attacked and overtaken by ISIS. And so the entire church had to scatter. They had to leave town. And what they did is they fled to another city and started a church there. I mean, that, that's crazy. When I hear this story, I feel so ashamed that I'm so weak in my evangelism sometimes. I mean, these guys are on the front line, relentlessly mission-minded. This is our brother Peter. He's going to lead a church in Helsinki pretty soon. But years ago, he, he's about 50, he's 50 years old and going into the full-time ministry like two months ago. 
And uh, years ago, when they planted a church in Kathmandu, him, along with some other brothers and sisters, went to the city and, and started sharing their faith and trying to plant a church there. The day after they arrived, the newspaper caught hold of their arrival. They wrote an article, distributed it out, and said, if you have complaints against this group that has just come to Kathmandu, please inform us. If they convert any of you, it will be five years in prison. And so you think, well, well, what are you going to do in a situation like that? That, that? that little mission team got together and they prayed a, a prayer similar to Acts 4. That Sunday they had over 200 people at church. That's, that's relentless in their mission mindset. I feel like so soft. Over, you know, when I hear these stories, but I feel so inspired that people are living on the edge for the gospel. In nine months, they converted 60 people. Despite what's going on there. I had conversation after conversation like this. And I just felt like, am I, am I even doing anything? What am I doing? This was the most striking. This is Paul from Rwanda. It's circled there in Africa. You may be familiar with the Rwandan genocide. Sadly, during some of the genocide, some people posed as church leaders and invited people to church, buildings, packed them out, and then killed people in a massacre. And as a result of all this, the government cracked down and said, if you want to be a recognized church, you must have a master's degree in theology, and your church must buy and own property to put a church building on. And so immediately that shut down all the churches in Rwanda, in our fellowship. They didn't have master's degrees, and, and they didn't own property or own a church building. And, you know, we, we were chatting, and I was, well, what, what did you guys do? I mean, what, what do you do in a scenario like that? Oh, bro, we gathered everybody up, and we drive to the border, where we meet with the church in Uganda. <laughs> As you do. And they bring visitors. I heard these stories, I just felt like, oh, man... There's people really relentless about their mission. That was so inspiring. So inspiring. This should call us hard. And the idea, if you read the Bible, you think, oh, we really have no excuse compared to that. I love being, you know, the teenage years are the years you can be most radical. That's an expectation. I want to encourage all of our teens to be relentless in their mission-minded at their schools. Just go for it. These guys are going for it. Some of them are over 50. And, and despite serious persecution, they're going for it. And I love that. The reason we can be relentless is God is relentless in his mission. You read the Bible cover to cover. God is relentless about pursuing humanity. He creates everything. They muck it up in the garden. He keeps coming back. He forms a nation. They deliberately disobey, get sent into exile. He keeps coming back. Silent, prophetically for 400 years. Jesus turns up on the scene. Heaven splits open. Jesus gets baptized, goes to the desert, gets tempted, starts kicking out devils, starts recruiting people and says, I've come back to reclaim humanity. That's why we can be relentless. Because God is relentless in his mission mindset. This is a call for all of us to be that way as well. Lastly, I want us all to see the spiritual battle. It's turned sideways for some reason. Hopefully you can still see it. 
in this, in this passage here, the city of Ephesus is pretty wild, isn't it? It, it paints this picture of a, of a clear spiritual battle. If you've never been to a church or if you've never opened your Bible, I, I just want to draw your attention to the spiritual realm that exists and is, is evident in the Bible. There's a spiritual battle that's waging, that's very real. People allude to it without even really being certain of it with phrases like, they're battling their own demons. The devil made me do it. And people say these things to, to refer to something that actually is going on. Even though they may not subscribe to that belief system, they do, there is this kind of subtle recognition. There is a spiritual battle going on. In Ephesus, there's this culture known for the magic arts. And we'll see it even more in, in, the, in the latter part of chapter 19. But you see it very clearly in verse 13. There's, there's a band of Jewish priests. And what are they doing trying to exercise demons? They've kind of mixed up their uh, theology and their religion. And, but they're going around trying to exercise these demons. And in Ephesus, there's this big temple named Artemis and it has all these magical inscriptions written all around it. You can see some of this in museums today like in Paris. They have these kind of magical inscriptions, kind of hocus pocus. That actually is a Latin phrase mocking when disciples would take communion saying this is my body. Hocus pocus is Latin for this is my body. And so people heard that and says, oh, they're trying to do something magical. This is the kind of culture that Ephesus is. It's this like weird spiritual culture where they're trying to drive out demons. And there's this weird spiritual artifact there. And, and here's this guy, these seven guys trying to travel around, kick out evil spirits. And then they encounter this guy in verse 15. And the spirit speaks back to them. And says... Nice try. I know about Jesus, and I've heard about Paul, but I have no idea who you are. And then he jumps on seven of them and leaves them bleeding and naked. I mean, no wonder it says, oh, this became known. Everybody was seized with fear in verse 17. Oh, did you hear what happened to the seven sons of Sceva? <laughs> you know, coming naked. Coming to church next week. Hey, uh, just we got an announcement. The seven sons of Sceva were beat down. And, like, this, this is crazy stuff, okay? This is intense stuff. Who are you? And then everybody hears about it. And, and then people who are practicing sorcery in verse 19 say, I'm giving up this trade, man. I'm coming forward. I'm going to confess everything I've done. I'm going to burn my scrolls. And it totals like 35000 current dollars today. So I'm going to come and I'm going to burn $35,000 worth of stuff. Now I'm done. This, this is too much for me. This, there's a spiritual battle going on. And if you read the Bible, there's this wild backdrop that says there's this spiritual realm that really exists. Okay? This is one of many passages, Psalm 82, that paints this picture. Psalm 82 says this. Go read this for the next year. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgments among the gods. Translated Elohim in the Hebrew, meaning there are many other gods, but yet one chief Yahweh, supreme being. How long? This is his accusation to the other gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. 
you will all fall like every other ruler. This is God accusing other spiritual beings, not men. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Now, in a brief nutshell, if you read the Bible cover to cover, there's this backdrop that's substantiated by Deuteronomy chapter 32, where God says there's all these different spiritual beings who have different levels of authority and different levels of power, and it kind of gets sorted out to different nations. And you see that in Daniel when he's fighting against the prince of Persia, because that's his territory. But God chooses Israel. He says, Israel is mine. And he chooses Israel for himself. And then these other nations kind of get these other spiritual beings that have this authority and this power. And then, but when Jesus comes back on the scene, or when he comes on the scene in the gospel, you see it very vividly and very clearly where demons walk up to him and they say, I know who you are. Have you come to torture me before the appointed time? Please don't send me out of the area. Please send me into the pigs. And so you, you can read the Bible cover to cover, and there's a very real spiritual battle that exists. There's very real spiritual beings that are out there. They're not denied in the Bible. And I don't know what they're like and their level of power and authority and all that, but I do know that Jesus has this supreme authority. They fear him. He steps on the scene, they go running. Just his name, if you read this passage, that's what they say. Hey, they, they say, in the, name, in the name of Jesus, who Paul uses. They knew there was even something powerful about the name of Jesus. And then, after it happens, in verse 17, the name of Jesus was held in high honor. This is a city that's very spiritual and knows and is aware of all this stuff. But when they hear about Jesus, they say, oh man, this, this guy's a different spiritual being. He's something unique. He's something supreme. There's something vastly different about Jesus. What we learn from this is you can't just add Jesus to your mix and expect it to be all good. I mean, they have some religious theology in here, and they just think, oh, all we got to do is say the name of Jesus, and we'll kick out demons. And so you you think, oh, no, it's not just about token worship of Jesus. You got to be all in. You got to be all in, and 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 and, and you got to think when, when people there's a spiritual battle that's going on. When people are trying to seek God, and then all these problems start to come in in their life, that's not coincidence. There's this spiritual warfare for their soul taking place. When you become a disciple and you're going throughout your spiritual life and you start to encounter all these difficulties and trials, and it's just not coincidence. There's a spiritual battle waging for your soul. It's not your boss. It's not the government. It's not some secret global alliance. It's a spiritual battle targeting your soul. I'm not saying every time you encounter a red light, it's a demon trying to stop you in traffic. That's not what I'm saying, okay? But I'm saying there is something seriously going on. And we see that here, and we'll see more of it in the latter part of Ephesus. And there's also a supreme being more powerful than any of these, and when he steps on the scene, simply his name strikes fear in all of them. And it's Jesus. We have to see this spiritual battle and recognize, if you've never been to church and you're feeling this kind of, hey, there is something going on in your life. But there is a supremely powerful being that puts all that to rest. As we conclude this morning, we all need other people in our life to help us fill these gaps, right? None of us have it all figured out. Praise God. Let's be humble. Let's be respectful as we help people bridge these gaps.
Let's be inspired by our brothers and sisters on the front line. I think their example alone inspires me to share my faith. And it should inspire us all that we need to be relentless in our mission mindset. And let's not be naive to this spiritual battle that's going on. There's one waging for your soul this morning. And as we believe in Jesus and we belong to this community and we become more like Christ, the word of God will be held in high honor in New Zealand. Amen. Amen.